0: Now, before we start, (laughs) before we start, I just received while I was doing this, I just received a text that I need to read to you from God. God just sent me a text Mm. and I need to read it to you. (sighs) All right, here we go, Stephen. It says, uh, Stephen, my beloved son, do not be afraid for it is I that texteth thee. I hitteth thee up with a word from heaven, my son. Leaveth thine cowboys alone. <laughs> you do not wanteth any holy smoke with me <laughs> for I have calleth them to be America's team. so if you don't wanteth me to pulleth up, lay back before you getteth these hands. Signed your father mm. triple OG God mm.
1: <sighs> I hate to challenge anything that anybody says, but I consider uh, God to be the greatest source of inspiration for all of us. He created all of us, after all. I would say this to you. Uh, God is perfect. Uh, God is unstained. God is unblemished. God is a winner. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I sincerely, sincerely doubt that God would take time out of his enormous schedule to come to the defense and to try to elevate and ascend (laughs) such mediocrity known as the Dallas Cowboys. I just refuse to believe that. So I'm going to challenge the authenticity of that text. And I would say to you, I don't believe that came from God himself because I am quite sure there are an abundance of things. There are an abundance of entities. And then as it pertains to the world of sports, there are an abundance of teams that God could come to the defense of and speak very, very glowingly about that would have absolutely positively nothing to do with the Cowboys. So I respectfully challenge the authenticity of that text. I don't know how it can be authenticated, Uh, But somehow, some way, I would say
0: Uh, it needs to be. uh, Oh, my gosh. Brothers and sisters, sisters. (laughs) my name is Kirk Franklin. And I come to give you good words. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I'm excited about this one. Today, one of the illest dudes out there joins me on the podcast. Now, if you know anything about me, you know I know nothing. I say nothing about sports, nothing. But I do know greatness. I do know personality. I know charisma. I can feel ambition when it's just flowing through the television screen. And I'm talking to someone right now who just, uh, it's almost like if he could bottle it and sell it, we would all be extroverts in every way because he is just radiating with all of those qualities. I heard he was a pretty good ball player on the court, but you probably know him more for talking about the sport. Now. He's never afraid to speak his mind, now. In fact, it might have landed him in hot water at times with a few people here and there, but I don't care. I love people who go against the grain. And one thing you can say about this brother right here, he's always going to keep it a buck. He's always going to keep it a hundred. From the world of print, radio, and television, I'm so grateful to have on Good Words with Kirk Franklin. He's been my cheat code into the sports world. Please welcome Stephen A. Smith. Stephen, where did this love for sports come from?
1: Um, You know, growing up, uh, Hollis, Queens, New York City, and having a park uh, right around the corner from my house and, you know, just being a part of that. My father was an athlete from the West Indies, Virgin Islands, St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. Uh, He was a basketball and a baseball player. And one of the things that he did, he, he played a lot of sports, but really it was about him watching sports religiously. My father watched two things. He watched sports and he watched old Western movies. That was it. Okay. And obviously, being a young kid born in 1967, raised in the 70s in the streets of New York City, I wasn't too interested in old westerns. So, if I wanted to watch TV, chances are I was going to have to watch sports. And so, it was a natural connection there. Um, And then later on, I knew that I could play. And, you know, so you just went with it from there. But there's no question. uh, that that's where it emanates from. It emanated from my dad um, and, and my brother, my late brother. He could ball as well. And the kids in the neighborhood, you know, we used to play football on the block. Mm -hmm. You know, on cement Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, running around the streets and stuff like that. And then, of course, the basketball court was around the corner. Exactly. Especially in the snow. (laughs) You know, in snow on the ground, we definitely did that as well. So, you know, if you play it and you want to know more about it, uh, you want to learn more about it, and then it just never leaves you. And where it really, really elevated for me was when I struggled because I got left back in school. And when I got left back, Ultimately, what inspired me outside of kids mocking me and laughing at me was the fact that if I wanted to play sports, I was going to have to be eligible. And so Mm. you really learn to prioritize and ultimately you learn to attach that level of passion. Uh, Because I got left back in the fourth grade, I had a first grade reading level. I was suffering from dyslexia, didn't know it. And what had happened was, is that in the process of learning how to read and to do that stuff, one of my professors said to my mother, it was a teacher rather, in the seventh grade, he said to my mother, he said, quote, your son is no dummy. He said, here's the problem. He drifts. If something doesn't interest him, he's not listening. It just goes right over his head because he's not paying attention. He said, but when your son is interested and he locks in, mm. he said, your son can accomplish anything that he wants to accomplish. And I always remember that and I always attached. And that was the reason why my interest in sports really elevated because I knew that I was interested in it. So I would never be bored with it. And as a result, I would be more edified and become a bit more intelligent about the subject matters that I grab, particularly if it was in some way attached to
0: sports. And that's how I used it as my tool to ascend. You don't know how many people that you've just blessed with your transparency. So many people only see success in when they hear levels of transparency like that, man, you just helped some mother with her child. Man, that is so big of you. And I feel you as well, because I'm just a few years younger than you. And I had learning disorder as well. I stayed in the music class. I stayed in the drama class, stayed in the band class, never went to biology, never went to math. And I failed the ninth grade because I didn't understand, yeah. you know, that even then I had ADHD. But back then you and I both know they didn't no. know the language know. for those things. They didn't right. know the language. And so to hear you be so transparent and successful as you are, that is a beautiful thing. I want to ask you, as I know that that in itself could bring a level of insecurity and self-esteem in a kid. How did you rise from the insecurity of that, especially having siblings and you being laughed at probably and made fun of? How did you develop this confidence that we now see as the Stephen A. Smith brand? Desperation. Uh,
1: desperation to get out of poverty, desperation to to one day be able to do something for my mom. Uh, my mom who passed away in 2017 after a long battle with cancer, God rest her soul. Mm, She's the greatest man. human being I've ever known. And um, she was my everything. And she was a person when I got left back and people laughed at me or when I got older and there were still people within the family, like my father, that that doubted what I could do, my mother wouldn't bend. She believed in me, her support for me was unwavering. And all she would really, really emphasize to me is that I had to work hard. She said, I'm not gonna support laziness. Um, She said, as long as you're not lazy, she said, I believe that you can achieve whatever you put your mind to because I believe that you have that in you. And to see her work two jobs, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, for 20 straight years with one week's vacation, not just to do what she could, but to offset what my father wasn't doing Mm. and to do what she did. um, I just grew up mission-minded that I was gonna make her life easier, that I was gonna make her proud and I was gonna do everything that I could to make sure that the life that we had to endure when I was younger, although it wasn't all bad. I had a lot of love in the household. I have four older sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot of love in the household. I certainly had the love and support of my mom. And knowing that I had that, um, it was just a matter of me willing to put forth the work, make the necessary sacrifice, and to do everything that I could to be successful and deemed successful. And one of the other things, about it, when we talk about a vision or whatever, here's the one vision that I did have for myself. I didn't know exactly what I was going to be. I actually thought I was gonna be a criminal lawyer. Really? Um, I really did. I thought about being a criminal lawyer, or whatever, but I wasn't that great in school earlier on as I articulated. Uh, but in the end, it was like, hey, you know, the support and the love and the strength that she provided me, I just said, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go for it. And it wasn't that I didn't have fears is that I refuse to allow my fears to paralyze me because I knew that I was smart enough to listen to other people and to learn. I always use this line, Kirk, I always use this line. I'm brilliant because I know I'm not. I listen to those who are and I learn from them.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm telling you. And I'm doing that right now. I'm learning vicariously through you just about this whole global world of sports. But to know that you struggle as a kid like I did, I can tell you that personally, this interview is already encouraging me. How did you learn that you had a skill with words and communication and that you were this mouthpiece even like, like, could you play the dozens? Or did you just learn
1: how to get strong? My mom and my sister and them said, I came out of the womb running my mouth. They said, I came out of the womb running my mouth. They said, I always knew how to talk. But here's the interesting part about me getting left back. I always could speak well. I could articulate very well. No problem, fluidity of words coming out of my mouth. It, just, it was just something that was there. But if you asked me to explain what I had just read, I couldn't do it. Mm, gotcha. It wasn't the reading, it was the comprehension. And so what happened is I had to slow down. I had to learn to listen. Then there was the issue of vocabulary. Well, I learned a tactic that I still utilize to this day over 40 plus years later. Whenever I don't understand a word, I will stop. I will grab a dictionary. I will look up that word, see its meaning, look at the context that it's used in so I can contextualize the word. Yes. And then I'll move forward. And that's how I spent years improving my vocabulary, because you recognize the multiple ways in which you could use certain words. And then for me personally, it's just learning about what was profound and what was just a bit tepid or a bit timid and things of that nature. So when you really, really trying to make a point, how do you deliver it? I remember growing up being a part of the TV generation, I'd look at people and I'd say, he's not believable, she's not believable. I don't believe this. Why is that important? Because even if you're telling the absolute unequivocal truth, the reality is, is that your message is only as powerful as how it's received. If nobody's hearing where you're coming from, then what potency comes with your message? Wow. So just as much as I focused on delivering a message, I also focused on who my target audience was and what I wanted them to grasp from my message. All of those things I put into play before I even utter a word
0: out of my mouth. I'm going to scare you again. I have on my phone right now a list of vocabulary words. When I'm Uh trying to expand, I'm telling you, every time I hear a word that intrigues me, I love words. Again, I didn't graduate high school. I don't have a Mm GED, but I wanted to be able to make sure that I could have conversations with people outside of my sphere of influence. So this is continuing to scare me even more how closely knitted we are. I want to ask you, um, with your personality, with what you've gone through, did you find ways to develop relationships and your love interests? Like, did you ever feel like you had to kind of learn how to balance your big, big engagement of who you are Mm -hmm. when it came time to try to date someone? Well, when it comes to
1: trying to date somebody, I mean— That's a loaded question because I'm (laughs) single. I've been single. And unfortunately for other people, even to myself to some degree, I'm happy to be single. Um, I think that's changed. And and obviously I anticipate settling down sometime in the near future. But for a long time, I had zero interest in being married. And here was the reason why. When you grow up poor, sometimes it's about getting out from that abyss. Mm. And it's about ensuring that you never go back. And unfortunately, you looked at yourself as anything, anything could be a potential distraction. Mm. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I spent a lot of my young years not proud of it, but I was promiscuous in my younger years. No question about that. Same here. Same here. Um, And I didn't feel guilty about it one bit because I wasn't a liar. I wasn't Mm. somebody that pretended to be something but with something else. I was somebody that was this way and said, this is how I'm living my life because I got other things that are on my mind and I don't have time for a relationship. So you either want to be with me or you don't. Mm. And if people wanted to be with me, fine. And if they didn't want to be with me, that was their right too. And that was my mentality. But it really wasn't about that. It was really about the fact that I was mission-minded. I never dreamed that I would achieve the success that I have achieved, but I did believe I would be successful. And I knew that I had to make sacrifices. And one of the sacrifices that I made was quote unquote family. Because for me, the mindset was, look, I gotta be able to pay bills. I gotta be able to take care of my family. And you know, more often than not, there were problems that came along with that because women would challenge me. Why does it have to be about that? And I'm like, I saw my dad. I love my dad. I'm, I'm sorry that he's gone. I eulogized him at his funeral. He passed away 14 months after my mother passed away, wow. close to three years ago after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. Um, but, you know, in the same breath, I'm sorry to say he wasn't a good man. He didn't take care of his responsibilities. He didn't take care of his family. And my resentment towards him was about the fact that he left my mother to take on that burden. And it wasn't like he left and moved away and all of this other stuff. He's My mother and he were married for 60 years. Wow. And he never left. He just didn't do anything. And he left the burden to her. And so I saw my mother struggling and struggling and struggling. And to me, my definition of a good man was someone who took care of his family, period. It wasn't about anything else. The individual relationships, of course, you never put your in, because that was cold in my house. Even with my dad, you never put your hands on a woman ever. You know what I'm (laughs) saying? You don't do stuff like that. And, and I come from a household where if you were a man and you did put your hands on a woman, the men were going to deal with you. That's the, that's where I come from. And I'm still that guy. I'm still that guy. But the other side to it is that whatever else goes on in your individual relationships from an emotional perspective is you y'all's business. Mm-hmm. So whereas my sisters might look at my dad. And they might have a problem with some other things he may have or did not do when it pertained to my mom. My issue with him was that you allowed this woman to handle your manly responsibilities. It is your job to provide and protect. Now, if my mother wants to be a registered nurse like she was, fine. If she wants to go out there and work and earn money and help you pay the bills, that's fine. I'm not trying to sit up there and say she was supposed to wear some apron and be in the kitchen and that was her role. That's not what I'm trying to imply. I'm trying to say that if you are a man with the capability to do so, that is a choice you should allow her to have as opposed to having to compel her to do it because you're not handling your responsibilities as a man of God. It is your responsibility to provide and protect. And I got a saying, you know, I'm a dad, I've got two daughters, I've got four older sisters, I've got eight nieces, I've got 14 nieces and nephews overall. You know, I've I've got all of that going on. And every single one of them would tell you what my motto is when it comes to the very issue we're discussing right now. What's that? If you're hungry, it's because I'm starving. I don't eat until you eat. I'm not okay until you're okay.
0: This is too good. (sighs) All right, so now, The Stephen A. Smith that has all of these experiences as a young man, all the siblings coming from poverty, coming from from a big city, seeing the ups and downs, the ridicule of being left back in school and all of these challenges. Now we see you transitioning to Winston-Salem State. I want to know, how did you even get introduced to an HBCU? Playing
1: basketball in New York City, I played basketball my senior year in high school at Thomas Edison Vocational and Technical High School. At the time, I was 5'9", about 130 pounds. (laughs) Um, I was light in the (laughs) you-know-what, but I could ball, but I could ball. So Fashion Institute of Technology was a junior college in New York City, and it was Fashion Institute of Technology. So people would teach you, what did you major in, sewing or something like that? They would laugh about it, but I majored in Advertising and Communications. And lo and behold, we were ranked 15th in the nation. Mm. We were 35 and four. We were doing some good things. Um, A friend of my family's, his name was Harold Funny Kitt. He used to play at Winston-Salem State University in the 70s, still knew Coach Clarence Big House Gaines, the legendary Clarence Big House Gaines. And he called Coach and said that he had somebody he wanted me to take a look, that he'd wanna take a look at. So he told me that he was gonna bring me down, gave me about two weeks notice. I went down to Winston-Salem for a tryout. Okay. And when I went out for the tryout, uh, Coach Gaines put me in the game in practice. And I kept passing the ball, and he said, he blew the whistle. He said, are you, what are you here for? I said, what do you mean? He said, aren't you supposed to be a shooter? I said, yeah. He said, then shoot the ball, damn it. (laughs) I said, okay. And when he said that, um, talk about God watching over you. I hit 17 straight three-pointers.
0: what you say? what you say?
1: 17 straight. He signed me to a scholarship on the spot, and that's how I ended up at Winston-Salem State University. I never did it again, but I did it that day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so then now you're playing basketball, yeah. and you're telling me that you're very good at it, and you're doing your thing at the HBCU. Explain to me, then, where did this love for journalism come in? But, well, what happened is that
1: my very first year at Winston-Salem State, I was in practice and I went up for a layup and I cracked my kneecap in half. Whoa. Kneecap just split. And because we were poor, my mother's medical insurance would not cover rehabilitation in North Carolina. In order for me to receive the proper rehabilitation, I had to leave school and travel back to New York City for eight months to go through extensive rehab. Wow. And so because I had to do that while I was home, my mother said... Clearly you're not gonna be playing ball professionally. That was a long shot to begin with, but clearly that's gonna be the case now. So now that you're sitting back here contemplating your future, all you're talking about is getting back on the basketball court. What are you gonna do with the rest of your life? What are you gonna do when basketball is no longer an option for you? We really need to talk about that. And so at that moment I said to her, you know, I'm gonna be on TV. I just jumped, I'm gonna be on TV. She was like, really? She said, didn't you tell me that all they do is smile and read a prompter? Hmm. Which I had said to her at the time. Hmm. I said, well, maybe I could write for the school newspaper or something. I don't know. She said, well, figure it out. And we need to prioritize that. So I got back to school and I was writing for the school newspaper. And I took a critical and persuasive writing class while I was at Winston-Salem State. And a professor for the course was a guy by the name of John Gates, who also happened to be the editorial page editor for the Winston-Salem Journal local daily newspaper. Okay, And okay. he gave us an assignment, he read an essay, and he looked at it and he said, you're a natural born sports writer. Wow, that's dope. He said, let's talk about this over lunch next week, Tuesday, because his class was on Tuesdays. So the next week I came in and I thought we were going someplace to eat. And lo and behold, lunch was at the Winston-Salem Journal. He took me straight to the newspaper Straight into the office of the sports editor. His name was Terry Oberly. And Terry Oberly sat there with me for five minutes to hear about my ambitions. And I said, That's it. He said, Okay, when can you start? I said, Excuse me. He says, You have a job. He said, Would you like to be a clerk here at the paper? And he said, Where can you start? And I said,
0: Tonight. And he said, I'll see you at six o'clock. And that's how my career started. Steve, the chills. Chills, brother, is I got chills on my arm. Listen, man, your tragedy created a moment for transition. Yeah. And that is so powerful. Did you ever feel, like, did you ever feel an invisible hand, what I would call, like, God orchestrating a difficult moment? Like, did you feel that there was something bigger at play that you couldn't really explain? Then, yes. But remember, there was a
1: couple of months where none of that was happening, and so all I had at that particular moment was the angel that God had sent to me, which was my mother, Janet Smith. Wow. And so her constant presence and her constant prodding, because my mother wasn't the most emotional person in the world, she wasn't the most mushy, loving person in the world. My mother passed away, you know, around when I was 49. in that time. I can count on one hand how many times I heard my mother say, I love you. Mm. But there was never a day that went by that I didn't know. My mother was the kind of person that said, look at me, watch me, see what I do, and let that be your judgment, not what I say." And so because of that, I carried that with me wherever I went. And to answer your question directly in terms of that period, She was literally on me about finding what I wanted to do. Where I felt the hand of God really impacted me was when I got the job and I sat in that chair just to be a clerk. Two weeks later, the editor sent me out on an assignment to cover Wake Forest soccer. And Wake Forest soccer was ranked number three in the nation at the time. He said, I want you to go there and write a piece on soccer. I knew nothing about soccer, Kurt, nothing. Absolutely nothing. So I went to the coach, and his name was Walt Chisawicz. He's passed away now. And I told him I know nothing about soccer. I've never covered it. The only soccer I've ever watched was Pele in 1980. Uh-huh. I remember Pele. In the Olympics. I said, that's all I know. And he called the whole team over. He said, when is this article due? And I said, a week from Sunday. It was a Thursday. And he looked at his team and he said, each and every single one of you are to give him complete unadulterated access for the next four or five days so he can write this article. Wow. And he said, when you're not talking to them, you will stand next to me. And over that four-day period, he literally taught me the game of soccer. So I turned it into an end zone piece, two-page piece for the Winston-Salem Journal, that 10 days later. And that Monday, the sports editor called me into his office. He said, great job on the piece. Congratulations. I said, thank you. He said, do you know what I'm congratulating you for? I said, for the piece. He said, not exactly. You're the new beat writer for Wake Forest Soccer. <laughs> Congratulations. That means wherever the team goes, I go. And so at that moment in time, the reason why I say it was really God watching over me and just recognizing it is because it was the first time in years, I mean, maybe in my lifetime that I didn't think about basketball. I said, okay, the end is here. Now I'm going here. That's when I stopped thinking about basketball and started thinking about the different path because I said, this ain't an accident. I was meant to do this.
0: More with one of a kind voice, Stephen A. Smith, when Good Words returns from the break. Life is too short to sleep between anything less than really nice sheets. I mean, we should be spending at least a quarter of our day asleep. And you can't tell me that if you had the opportunity, you would want to sleep in anything less than luxury. Brooklinen makes it easy to afford luxury while not paying luxury prices. With their comforters, pillows, towels, even loungewear, they offer direct-to-consumer products with a 365-day money-back guarantee. If you don't like it, you don't have to keep it. So don't be afraid to try it. Go to Brooklinen.com and use promo code Kirk to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com to enter promo code Kirk to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. Brooklinen.com and use promo code Kirk at checkout. They have a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and tastes. That's b r o o k l i n e n dot com and enter promo code Kirk to get twenty five off when you spend a hundred dollars or more, plus free shipping. Man, that's crazy. Let's go. Anybody ready for a good word? This interview about you is bigger than what I could have ever imagined. I would have never known the backstory of your life. So from print. Tell me the first time you were ever on camera. And how long was that period of time that you stayed in the print world till you got your first break being in front of a camera? Well, overall,
1: I've been in print from 1993 to 2010. But to answer your question directly about when did I get in front of the camera, well, I was a disc jockey on the school campus with my own late night show playing slow jams. That's number one. Soft and warm. It was called tender moments. <laughs> hey! It was called tender moments, <laughs> hold right? On, hold on, right? Hold on, hold
0: on. Steve, 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 <laughs> Steve, Steve. Steve, Steve. Let, me hear, let me hear one of your intros. Come on, come on. Just, just, just like, give me a little flashback. I would just sit up there and say, you know, uh, oh my goodness, this is
1: 1990, 1991. I was... I would come on late at night. I would be like, you know. Um, Give it to I'd me, low say, voice,
0: low voice, low voice, low voice. Hey, well, it's
1: always the low voice. It's always the yes, low voice. So, yeah, I'd be like, cause, I would always, cause I'm the dude and I was like, ladies out there. I'd be like, I know some of y'all have had a rough day thinking about how things have been for you. But I want you to know that I'm here. Just think about the kind of music that you want to listen to. The way music touches your soul and your heart. Think about that person that you wish you were with right now, holding you, making you feel like everything's gonna be just fine. (laughs) For the next two hours, that's what I'm thinking about when I'm playing this music for you.
0: Boom! Hard. Let something me tell you like something. something. Let me like tell you that. something. There is right now, right now. I want you to know that there is some sister that go to church right now, and she will never be the same after this moment. Right now, she will hey. have to go take a little shower because you just a mess. You just a mess her whole spirit up. I doubt it. I doubt it. But I hear you. So, so, so the first time you're on camera, okay? Tell me about that moment. First time I was on
1: camera was in 1996, 1997. I started covering the Philadelphia 76ers as a beat writer covering Allen Iverson. And so Allen Iverson was a walking headline in and of himself. And so the Comcast local folks, Comcast network in Philadelphia, would have me come on to talk Sixers basketball. And they weren't paying. They didn't pay anybody anything. But I said to them, I don't need your money. Mm -hmm. All I need you to do is do me one favor. And what I did was I said, I'll come on anytime you want me to, anytime my schedule allows, so long as you give me a copy of my appearance. That's all I ask. And I kept coming on and I utilized it to build my portfolio. Mm. That portfolio, it really came to fruition for me because in 1998, 99, there was an NBA lockout. And when the NBA players were locked out by the owners, I was breaking all the stories for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I had sources giving me information about what was going on during the negotiations, et cetera, et cetera. And when that happened, the networks came calling because they would want to interview me. So CNN had a sports entity called CNNSI, CNN slash Sports Illustrated. And they had me in for an audition. And I knocked it out of the park, and they hired me as their NBA insider for CNN SI in 1999. And I would come on every Sunday, and that's when it happened. That's how it happened. That's how it
0: happened. That's how it happened. happened. Amazing. So now you are growing in your celebrity on camera, and then now you develop a personality that— at times can have bad commentary and people love you and you find two that love you and one that doesn't. How did you deal with all of that, even in your early stage and not internalize it? I never cared.
1: And the reason why I never cared. And I say that with no shame is for a few reasons. Number one, I've always been human. I judge what you do, not who you are. Mm. Number two, I don't get personal, okay? I'm focused on your performance. What you do in the privacy of your own home or in your own life, so long as it doesn't end up in the police blotters, it's none of my business. That's my mentality. But number three, I am a journalist by trade. And when you are covering journalism, you are supposed to be in tireless pursuit of the truth, recognizing the fact that you may not ultimately acquire it all the time, because you can't be a fly on the wall with everything. The bottom line is that if you're in tireless pursuit of the truth and you're ethical and you're moral, you owe nobody anything, but more importantly, you also recognize they don't owe you anything either. Mm. You cannot be in the field of journalism and your priority is to make friends. You don't want enemies, but you can't be focused on making friends because what happens is that gets in the way of your objectivity and what you're selling as a journalist is objectivity in terms of your gathering of the information that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, when you graduated to the point that I've graduated in this business, where you have the license to opon, to editorialize, to give your opinion and to be subjective. I have a license to do that, not just because I earned it and I worked my way up, but because I also advertise. These are my beliefs based on these this element of evidence that's placed before me. I'm not going to somebody like I'm covering the White House and I'm acting like I'm completely objective and down the middle, but in reality, I got shady intentions. That's never been me. And because I know that's never been me, ever, I sleep good
0: at night by calling it like I see it. See, and I'm impressed with that level of courage. And I need to let you know that brother to brother, I'm so impressed with it because myself, I wouldn't be too insecure. That would be too insecure to come up against the giants, like I see you do daily. Now, and sometimes you seem to enjoy it, though. Now, that's what's kind of dope. And so do you consider, if you don't want me asking you, yourself an antagonist? Like, do you ever play the role of the devil's advocate? No. I say
1: what I feel. I mean what I say. My obligation is to you. My obligation is to the viewer. The only obligation I have to the subjects that I cover is to be fair and humane. It's not to be their friends. Listen, we ain't having Thanksgiving dinner together. We ain't exchanging Christmas gifts. I don't want to be your enemy. I don't want to bother you or whatever. But when you go out on the court of play or the field of play and you perform before the masses, when people are watching me, they want to hear me deduce what I peel from that. And they want to hear me giving an objective opinion. They don't care about my relationship with you. They wanted to look, what do you feel about what we saw? Because we have an idea of what we saw. What did mm-hmm. you see, Stephen A? And are you going to give it to us straight? That's my obligation, first and foremost. And as long as I fulfill that obligation and
0: I'm as fair-minded as I possibly can be, then I'm okay. So then school me on this, King. School me on this. Then what is the skill set that one must learn then to develop and entertain, but yet maintain the truth no matter how opinionated some may think it to be? Well, first of all, the business is being honest and truthful about who you are and what you're doing.
1: Everybody has a job to do. Listen, Kirk Franklin can't come on ESPN to debate sports. Facts. Facts. Stephen A. (laughs) Stephen A. Can't walk into a studio and produce beautiful gospel music. (laughs) That ain't my lane. Got you. I know that. Now, if I step into that lane, that lane comes with expectations. If I say to you, man, I think I can produce some music. Let me come in the studio with you. You're going to say, show me what you got. (laughs) If I don't know how to use the keyboard, you're going to be like, oh, my Lord, what is this boy doing? What is he doing here? You understand? Know I'm saying? I'm saying, like, if I can't play the piano, the guitar, I can't play an instrument. I can't sing. I can't dance. I can't perform. I don't even know how to create audio. So how am I telling you I'm a producer of music? It makes no sense whatsoever. So it's about identifying what your job description is, highlighting what that job description is, why you are there, and then living up to the obligations that come associated with it. Now, the problem is, is that we try to ingratiate ourselves with subjects to such a degree that the lines get blurred Come on, because instead of being true to who you said you were, now you're willing to compromise yourself because you're trying to be in with somebody because you like them or you like the position that they're in and you want to touch and get a feel of that life or whatever the case may be. I don't care anything about it. And when you bring up talking to giants, I'm sorry to say this, but I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to be real. Come on. When it comes to this business, I am a giant. I'm not, I don't believe I'm talking to them. I believe I'm talking with them. I don't believe that they're in a lane or a stratosphere that I'm not in. I remember one time I had a conversation with Jay-Z. And he and I were arguing, just fun loving, because that's my man and I love him dearly. And, and we were just having, you know, a, a fun, affectionate argument about sports or something. And he said, my man, I'm Jay-Z. And I said, and I'm Stephen A. This is my lane. I ain't on stage spitting out rap lyrics. That would be you. This is me. Now to his credit, I have to confess, (laughs) the funny part is I'm saying what I said to you, and he ended up being more right than I was (laughs) with his sports (laughs) predictions. He reminds me now, you've got like 10 predictions against each other and he's got me beat like seven to three. So he's actually up on me. So I gotta gotta bow down and give love to my man Jay-Z. But but that that was funny. Not funny.
0: Not only that, you've got to bottle up some of this confidence that you have and you got to sell it. There's so many people that are listening to you right now that just don't have the level of confidence to not see themselves as a giant from another giant. And, but, and that's, that's incredible. But that's what you said. I'm going to tell you where my feelings somewhat differs from
1: yours, and I'll tweak it a little bit. Talk to me. I don't believe it's that they lack confidence. I believe they're overcome by fear. And what I mean by that is You might have the confidence to do something, but you're inundated and swarmed by some of the doubts and you're scared of the ramifications that emanate from potential failure. It's not that you don't believe you can achieve it. It's that there's a stop sign there or at least a yield sign that gives you a moment to contemplate. If you do this, here's the challenge. And if you fail at doing it, Then ultimately, there might be consequences and you have to pause for a moment to ask yourself, can I deal with those consequences? And that fear may overtake you. A lot of times we look at people and we think they have no confidence. It's not that they don't have the confidence. It's that they have questions that come along with it that make them pause. And during that pause, they get scared of the potential ramifications of failure. I find a lot of people to know in their heart of hearts, there are certain things that they can do. It's just a price that might come with it that they just don't want to pay. People like myself, people like you, people like others who are far greater than me. I can tell you this. The greatest asset they have is not that they're fearless It's their refusal to succumb to it. Cam Chancellor, who played for the Seattle Seahawks, the Legion of Boom, when they won the Super Bowl years ago over the Denver Broncos and Peyton Manning. I asked him one day, I said, how do you do it? He says, Stephen, what I do is make us attack our fears. Whatever you are scared of, I make you confront it before the season even begins. Whatever it is. If you're scared to defend this guy, I'm going to make you defend him. If you're scared to tackle this guy, I'm going to make you tackle him. If you're scared to do this assignment or that assignment, we're going to make you do it. Because what we want to do is we want to confront every fear we have. So when we go on the field, there is no fear because there is no hesitation. Because anything that we were worried about, we've already been confronted by. The fear of the unknown is the most powerful thing. Because if you don't know it, you've never had to face it and you've never had an opportunity to conquer it. Amen. But if you face it, you can overcome it. And I've never forgotten that since I met with him. And I've always made sure that anything that I'm fearful of, I'm ready to
0: attack. False evidence appearing real. I digress. You are correct, sir. And I think it is a powerful reminder. The first time I saw you, is I saw you on ESPN. Mm -hmm. So somewhere between the beginning at CNN, you transition to ESPN, your charisma, your style, your sauce, even somebody like me who is not well-versed in sports, I couldn't take my eyes off you, bro. And I was so impressed with the charisma and the entertaining value that you brought. And then I read that you became the highest paid sportscaster, there at ESPN, Mm -hmm. this young black man born into poverty who busted his kneecap and got transitioned his career. (sighs) Like, did that change the environment for you between even you and your peers? Did you have survivor's remorse? Like, how did you handle being in an environment where now you're the guy? Well, I have no doubt that jealousy
1: and envy lurks. Uh, because, you know, the devil's alive and well. And anytime somebody's prospering, there's going to be some kind of roadblock uh, that's going to be presented to you in some way, shape, form, or fashion. I know that. Once again, I didn't think much about it, though. And there's something called a resume. Resumes matter. Because it validates what you have earned. See, when people talk about me, and they speculate about the money that I make, and they are always wrong, because I'll never tell them. I will say this. I don't mind at all people knowing I'm the highest paid person, because even that's not complete. I am the highest paid talent in the history of ESPN. (laughs) No one has ever gotten more than me. And I deserve every penny. Mm. And more. Mm. And more. That would be bravado if I was speaking about my talent as to why I earned it. That is not what I'm doing. I'm speaking about my work. I'm speaking about my sacrifice. I'm speaking about my dedication. I'm speaking about the price that I paid. We started off this conversation talking about personal sacrifices that I made. Why you think I made them? Mm. Because I envisioned being in this position someday. Maybe not this literal position, but I envisioned success and I envisioned that there was a level of sacrifice that I was gonna have to make along the way. And when people question, you know, what do I earned or do I deserve it? My response would be, did you work my hours? Mm. Did you produce my content? Did you generate my revenue, my ratings? Wow! Did you do those things? Because I did, and oh, by the way, Were you told you were an affirmative action hire along the way by critics? Mm. Were you told that you wouldn't be smart enough? Were you told that you wouldn't be successful in your younger years? Were you pigeonholed? Were you marginalized? Were you minimized? Did you have doubters at every single corner ready to put a stop sign on your aspirations? Did you overcome all of that? Because I did. Mm. And so for me, when I sit up there and I say, I'm the highest paid in history and I deserve it. When I say that I'm number one and I deserve it, well, I'm giving you facts. I remember when people got laid off at ESPN and I was incredibly saddened by that. A lot of them didn't deserve it and I get all of that. But you had people that had the audacity to sit up there and say, how do they do that? But they let somebody like Steve A. stay there. Well, because I generate revenue and I generate ratings and I contribute to people remaining employed. Mm. So these are the kind of things that I bring to the table and it makes me harken back to something I recently heard the great Dave Chappelle say, when he said, I'm pretty good at minding my own business. I know my own business. And that's how I feel about me. I pay attention to my ratings. I pay Mm. attention to the revenue I generate. I know what the criteria is for winning and losing. I didn't just get a contract, take a check, be on the air, say the money's guaranteed and leave it up to ESPN to be concerned about. I monitor to the best of my ability what revenue I'm generating for the company to make sure that I'm an asset, not a liability. So you can always know your worth. So you can know your to the best yes. of your, Because again, you don't have access to every nugget right, of information. Right, right, but right. to the best of your ability, you do that. And people wonder, oh, the bosses, they seem to like him. It's just because he brings in money and revenue. Well, that's not entirely true. They like me because they know I'm dedicated to bringing in the money and the revenue. I go to them... And talk to them, what qualifies as success? What do we need to do for us to be successful? Because if I'm wow. talking to my employers about what benefits them, Teach us. why would they not want to listen to me? No boss wants to hear somebody complain, win-win. but if you go to them and you're talking about a win-win,
0: win-win, they're like this, Stephen A., how can we help you? And that's what it's all about. Ladies and gentlemen, please write these nuggets down. Please, as you're listening to this podcast, there's so many nuggets in this. Get this, ladies and gentlemen. This man is dropping jewels. Steve, I want to ask you, let's just touch on it real quick. You are an African-American, an African-American man. Yes. Talk to me about the simulation that may have had to be included at times in your career to maybe make non-African-Americans comfortable with your style and your delivery. Have you ever been asked to toned it down so non-African-Americans can feel comfortable? Not by ESPN, by
1: others, sure. And I remember when the former boss of ESPN, Mark Shapiro, he hired me because he had asked about me. A dear friend of mine, Kevin Frazier, who hosts Entertainment Tonight, along with a, a lady by the name of Kerry Chandler, who was heading human resources at ESPN at the time, they both recommended me to Mark Shapiro. He swore he did not know who I was. He walked into a meeting with his direct reports, 24, 25 of them, he said. And every single one of them said to him, do not bring Stephen A to ESPN. He's not our cup of tea. He's not our style. We don't want him, et cetera, et cetera. And Mark Shapiro said he's coming in for an audition. And the reason he said that was because he said he had never seen somebody so universally defied as much as me.
0: Mm. And he said
1: there had to be something to me because he never seen anybody react That way, he said, who is this guy? Every single one of y'all don't want him. So he brought me in for an interview and audition. 18 different people interviewed me in one day. And the very last guy that interviewed me was a guy by the name of Mike McQuaid. And he says to me, you're at Fox Sports Net, And he says, you're the big fish in the little pond. How are you going to feel about coming to ESPN where you'll be the little fish in the big pond? And I looked at him and said, no disrespect but I'm not gonna be the little fish in anybody's pond. Turn on the cameras, put me in front of it, move out the way and watch what I do. And so from that moment forward, I forced and compelled them to deal with me and who I was because my mentality was I'll never be successful trying to be something other than myself because it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable to be fake and phony and unreal and inauthentic. And I always knew that. And I held on to that belief throughout my career. Now for your viewers, it's something very, very important to bring up based on what we're talking about here. That level of just defiance and a willingness and a commitment to being yourself, Yes, it doesn't mean that it's devoid of adjustments. Mm. When you walk into the president's office, the executive VP's office, the general manager's office, et cetera, et cetera, they're the ones controlling the strings. They're controlling budgets, they're controlling personnel, they're controlling all of these things. You're going to them to ask for what you want. So how did I do it, Kirk? Very, very simple. When I'm on camera, it's time for me to perform. Mm. When I'm off camera, it's about convincing them to allow me to be in a position to perform. Teach us, teach us, man. It's two different things because I can only control what I can control. When I'm in front of the camera, that's my domain. But when I'm off the camera, now I have to deal with a corporate slash political stratosphere where the strings are not controlled by me. yes, And now I have to go into salesman's role where I'm trying to convince you to see things my way. Well, that's a quid pro quo. Why would you be encouraged to see things my way if I'm averse to seeing things your way? And you're the one with the strings. That it's kind of productive. So when we're out here and we're fighting and we deal with what we deal with as African-Americans coming up from that abyss that we come up from, having to scratch and claw our way to prominence and beyond and to do all the things that we're looking to do, yes. sometimes what gets lost in the shuffle is we're walking to people acting like they owe us something, not recognizing, A, they don't feel that way, and B, they're gonna be turned off by us having that attitude and therefore not necessarily be inclined to help us.
0: Teach us, man,
1: You gotta learn this about the marathon. It's not about the sprint. And if you're trying to get here and achieve things that not just affect you in a positive way, but the collective whole, sometimes you gotta let go a little bit of yourself for the greater good. Because all the great ones throughout history, in music, in entertainment, with activism, political, social, and otherwise, no one did everything they wanted to do. They understood that there were certain sacrifices that they had to make in the
0: battles in order to win the wars. And that is something I had to learn. Steven, right now as a man of color, I got to ask you one more question then. Sure. Should athletes stay out of social and political issues and just play? If they're ignorant, yes. If they're educated, no. You cannot
1: ever think that you're speaking just for yourself, particularly when you're a professional athlete. What you have to do is recognize the fact that it's not about you, it's about the greater whole. And if you're not going to say something or do something that affects the whole in a more positive than negative fashion, then have the decency to stand down and leave it to somebody who's more knowledgeable about the subject at hand and let them speak out. So there are a lot of things that you might be paying attention to and others might be paying attention to that I'm not. But something might have happened in the sports world that's connected to that stratosphere. And as a result, I'm now compelled to speak on it. What do I do at that particular moment? It's very, very simple, Kirk. What I do is I speak about it enough to provoke conversations by those who really, really know what the hell they're talking about. And they can take it to another level. Mm. I'm the conduit to it That's what I'm trying to do I said the mistake that I think people are making When it comes to me sometimes Is they think I'm coming across Or I feel I know it all Mm. And I'm very honest about what I don't know So if I don't know What I'm saying is I don't know this But he does Mm -hmm. She does Mm -hmm. They do So this needs to be discussed Here's why
0: Y'all take it away More Real Talk with ESPN's Stephen A. Smith on the other side of the break. Let's go. You've come from the streets of New York City. You come from poverty. To the highest paid personality in the history of ESPN, you have made your mama and daddy proud. Last question I want to ask you, and it's a dual question, what's next? And can you please leave us with a wisdom nugget? Well, what's
1: next is right now I've got Stephen A's world on ESPN+. Plus. And I was on it. Yes, you were. You did a great job. That was one of my highest-rated shows. If not my highest-rated show, thank you very much. I really wow. appreciate it. You turned thank it you, out. Thank you, sir. Um, I still got that. I got First Take and SportsCenter and all of this other stuff. But what makes Stephen A's world special is that I'm the executive producer, and I started my own production company, Mr. S.A.S. Productions, which co-produces it in concert with ESPN. Congratulations. Thank you. I also got a project out. Uh, Why Not Us, that airs on ESPN Plus as well, where we're highlighting the North Carolina Central University basketball program, sort of giving an indications of challenges that a basketball program from an HBCU faces that predominantly white institutions don't have to concern themselves with. So that's another thing that I'm executive producing and my production company is going on. A press release came out yesterday where I have a project in concert with propagate uh, content and confluential films called black excellence. And essentially what I'm going to do is highlight essentially the history of HBCUs and its contribution to American culture and beyond. Sports, politics, social issues, and everything like that. Because there's so many people that come from HBCUs that deserve to be celebrated, Yes. but also to highlight the trials and tribulations and the struggles. I'll give you an example. The average, when you talk about endowments, Harvard and Yale gets in excess of $30 billion annually. Uh, an Ivy League school like Brown will get like $3.1 billion in, you know, in endowments. An HBCU, the largest one ever, has only gotten like $250 million. Wow. So it's 10 times less. And so when you look at it from that standpoint wow. and you highlight those discrepancies, Those are the kind of things that I'm going to bring to the forefront about HBCUs because, again, the title of it is Black Excellence. You can't show Black Excellence by just showing accomplishments without showing and highlighting the trials and tribulations one had to endure in order to get to that point. Preach. You had to overcome things. And and the intestinal resolve of Black people is something that nobody on this planet Earth can rival as far as I'm concerned. And so that's something that I've committed myself to doing. I'm going to be executive producing that project my production company will be doing that, along with various other projects coming on down the pike. I hope to do late night television one day. Oh, that'd be dope. That'd be dope. Dope. And that's right, and and I'll have you on that too. Even though Trevor Noah for Comedy Central has done a great job, we haven't had a black man on network television for late night television since Arsenio Hall.
0: 30 years. Exactly, so for
1: me, I'm on a mission to be that guy. Hopefully I can pull it off, Uh, but it doesn't stop there. It just gets started. Anything's possible with me. The sky's the limit. I just take it as it goes. Those are my immediate goals at the particular moment in time. Beautiful. But nothing's going to stop me. And my words of wisdom, nothing worth having is going to come easy to you. Be ready to put your head down, put in that work, and don't fall in love with the accomplishment. Fall in love with the process. Mm -hmm. Because when you love the process, the results are going to come. Because it will be easy for you to have put
0: in the work to achieve it. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot tell you the amount of nuggets that we've received today, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight you guys got to see behind the curtain. Once again, we envy people's success, but we downplay their journey. And I want you to know I am so honored that one of the titans of black culture in the space of entertainment and sports is giving us all of this wisdom just for the people to grow. Please, y'all, please take this wisdom and let it transform your life. Help me thank one of the greatest, one of the greatest, y'all, Stephen A. Smith. Thank you, man. I appreciate you, bro. As I've always been fascinated by fourth quarters, I think fourth quarters are phenomenal because no matter what has happened up to that point, it all boils down to what happens in that fourth quarter. As I'll never forget being over some friend's house a few years ago for the Super Bowl that included the Atlanta Falcons and the New England Patriots. And I remember, because this was before COVID, there was a big house party and everybody was lounging and eating and watching the game. And it was amazing the lead that the Atlanta Falcons were enjoying at the time. And everybody was so comfortable in the house celebrating, like really the game was almost over. But what was forgotten about that game is that the other team had an individual that had a history of being down during the fourth quarter. He had been in so many situations where he had to get his team back into the game. And what I learned about fourth quarters is that that a lead can change by the experience of somebody that's been there before. And I slowly watched the Atlanta Falcons lose this incredible lead that they had over the New England Patriots until this incredible quarterback who had been in this situation got his team not only back from being far behind, but Mr. Brady was able to get them into the lead and they ended up winning that Super Bowl. To everyone's astonishment, one thing I learned is that you can never take for granted your fourth quarter. And the encouraging thing is about fourth quarters for another team is that you can never count yourself out just because you may be behind as you go into your fourth quarter same applies to life on so many levels. For people that may feel behind and for people that may feel like that they're going to lose the game of life, never count yourself out of your fourth quarter because you have somebody on your team that has been with you before when you've been down. And you have somebody that has experience in getting people back into the game when they're down in their fourth quarter. His arm is better than Brady's. And he knows how to run plays that are designed for the specific situations that you're in in your life. And if you will trust him, he's able to get you back in the game and not only get you back in the game, but you can win because he's been there before. And this is what I need for you to remember that you are God's child and it is never too late for you to get back in and win. When you find your passion, you can do anything. I hope you enjoyed today with Stephen A. Smith. Man, so many life nuggets. I hope you're enjoying this. I am because I want to continue to grow because I'm still in the game. Thank y'all so much for listening to Good Words with Kirk Franklin. If you're loving what we're doing here, please, please take a little time out and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Man, y'all have no idea how much I appreciate that y'all would even welcome me into this space. And I really want to continue on this journey with you. So help your uncle out by showing your support and let's keep putting some good words out into the world. Good Words with Kirk Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music, Provident Entertainment and Spoke Media. We're produced by Trey Jones and Cody Hoffmackle with help from Alicia Force and John Yale Kastner. Our executive producer is Keisha T.K. Dutess with Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. This episode was mixed by Will Short. The rest of our team is Reese Brooks and Michael Havens from For Your Soul, Ron Hill and Phil Thornton from Provident Entertainment. And a very special thank you to the Sony podcast team. Let's go.